My job at The Guardian was um, head of social and community by the end. And yeah, communities was the team that had, you know, beyond customer service, most contact with readers. And it's a bit more established now. But when I started out in that field, it was incredibly difficult both to communicate what on earth my job was to colleagues, why it mattered, um, why it wasn't a threat to what they were doing, um, why it could help the wider newsroom, you know, all those kind of things. Hello, and welcome to Freelance Pod. My name's Achandrika Chakrabarti, and I'll be your host. Freelance Pod is all about how the internet has changed the world of work. On each episode, I'll speak to a guest about freelancing, side hustles, the gig economy, jobs that weren't possible before the internet, and how moving from an analogue to a digital age has revolutionised the way we work. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation, I'd love to hear from you. So please do follow Freelance Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also join the Facebook group and you don't have to be a freelancer to get involved. I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's rated and reviewed the podcast. Over on iTunes, there are now seven five-star reviews and uh, you've said really lovely things about the insight into creative freelancers' careers, um, the guests and, and about my voice, which is very kind. Thank you so much. The ratings and reviews and subscriptions, in fact, really help us in Apple's algorithm. Um, It tells them that people like the podcast and they then push it out to more listeners. And in that way, it really helps the podcast grow. So thank you for playing your part in that. So on to this week's guest, who is Laura Oliver. Since we recorded the podcast at the end of last year, Laura has now taken on the role of acting head of audience growth at Vogue International. She's covering for Sarah Marshall, who's on maternity leave. Um, But when we spoke, she was still freelancing. Laura was the head of social and community at The Guardian up until summer 2016 when she took voluntary redundancy and she's been freelance for about two years or so and um, I really felt that her story has a lot of resonance at the moment with you know the layoffs and redundancies we're seeing in the media industry. Her attitude you'll hear in this episode has been you know quite practical as well. Um, She's managed to go on some incredible trips to train journalists and she's just really good advice for um for dealing with working on your own and working outside of a newsroom and for finding digital strategy work as well as the um the kind of writing work that we more readily associate with freelancing so laura's loads of great tips and um and it's a really good moment to be hearing from someone who took voluntary redundancy so uh, here's laura oliver i'm laura oliver I'm a freelance journalist and editor and also work as a digital media consultant, which means I go and stick my nose into people's newsrooms and media organisations and try and help fix problems. I also teach and train, including at City University, where I'm a visiting lecturer. I was in a staff job. I worked for The Guardian for about six years um, and have been working as a a journalist in various staff jobs for the past 11 years. Um, So I'd never freelanced before. um, And I left The Guardian in the summer of 2016. 
Um, I took voluntary redundancy. Um, the company was going through a lot of changes and I saw it uh, as an opportunity, I think, to do something a bit different. Um, I didn't necessarily plan that I would freelance. Um, I initially thought I'd take a kind of month off. It was over the summer. I was getting married um, and then I would by the by research jobs and look for other kind of full-time uh, staff opportunities and then a combination of things happened I guess I was approached about a few freelance projects I wanted to return to more writing and editing I'd been in a kind of uh, managerial commissioning and strategy role and I quite wanted to get back to reporting so I thought well why don't I scratch that scratch that itch um and also I had been working in a very large very exciting international news organization but I also felt slightly burnt out by it if I'm honest and the idea of being my own boss and having a bit of control over what projects I took on appealed um but it certainly wasn't uh a plan I'd had in mind as I handed in my application for redundancy. I didn't think, oh, well, next step will be a smooth transition into freelancing. I, it very much kind of, I fell into it, shall we say. When I was in my staff job, I was fully focused on that job and I managed quite a large team and that filled up any additional time I had for kind of thinking about, well, how might I take on some freelance or how might I point myself in the direction of what I want to do next? Um, I have a lot of admiration for people who manage to do that. I think it's really savvy. But I was just so consumed by what I was doing at that point um, that it hadn't really factored uh, you know, into my day-to-day -day routine, my day-to-day -day work. And then I realised that, yes, I have been quite fortunate and a lot of the roles that I'd done both at The Guardian and prior to that had allowed me to dip my toes into lots of different areas of journalism and that was great. And I then suddenly realised on the other side of it that actually, yeah, freelancing would allow that too. You know, I could indulge reporting, editing, teaching, training, strategy work and that didn't necessarily have to stop Um which was great, you know, once you, and as you say, you go, uh, it's very daunting at first. I remember sort of being overjoyed and then overwhelmed when I started to look at all the different networks that were available, all the Facebook groups, LinkedIn groups, things like that. Um, because you think, oh my God, there's so many freelance journalists already out there. How can I possibly scratch a living <laughs> you know how where will I fit into all this but then you also realize that it's a great reflection of how diverse the industry is and how no two journalists are the same and how many kind of weird and wonderful opportunities there are out there. I have wrestled with the idea of should I specialize either in a skill um, or in terms of writing and editing in a subject matter. And I haven't really landed on a good answer to that question. And that might just be because I'm greedy and I want to kind of keep my hand in and everything. I have, my training is in newspaper journalism and I have worked on newspapers, but I have always been digital. I have always occupied roles involving online skills. And I think for me, that's probably 
what's marked me out. An interest, I think, in where the industry is headed. Prior to working at The Guardian, I worked um, for a great website called journalism.co.uk. And that, as well as giving me a really great place to cut my teeth in terms of reporting and editing, was a, a window onto where the industry was headed and what interesting things people were doing. And I think that interest has always stayed with me. And perhaps that has allowed me both, I think, to seek out kind of unusual opportunities, but also, I don't know, subconsciously or unconsciously position myself as someone who wants to try new things, who is thinking kind of about the bigger picture strategically about where organisations might go, where journalism might go, how we can introduce new tools, how we can introduce new technologies and things like that. So that has helped. I think for me, what's been more essential has been the the network of people that you've met along the way. And again, it's I I sort of recoil a bit at the word networking, which is awful for a journalist because a lot of our job is speaking to people who we've never met before. And I love doing that because I want to hear about them. But when I'm talking about myself, I yeah, it, it makes my skin crawl a little. But I think there is a, a, a stronger network than many people may realise. Um, and it may not be something you've been actively feeding, but there is an opportunity. And I found it when I went freelance or when I sort of decided, okay, well, I'm going to kind of let everyone know that I'm available for work now. Um, I sent a one-off email to all my LinkedIn contacts. Um, so, you know, that's 11 years of people that you've met or bumped into or worked with or whatever. Um, and I'd kept it pretty tight to people that I actually had met, um, people that I accepted requests from. Um, and it was a one-off. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm never going to do this again. You're not going to get, you know, spam from me, but I just want to let you know that I'm now doing this and I'm available for work and new opportunities. And honestly, the feedback from that and the, and, you know, some direct offers of work as well, but I hadn't realized quite how strong that network was until I took this leap. And that was quite reassuring. And now I'm more aware of it. And now I try and do things to help feed it and support it and give back to it and things. But it was a nice um surprise I guess that when you really needed it those connections were there I have a website as well I don't just rely on LinkedIn but as I was leaving the Guardian I was able to take up some kind of sessions with a a kind of HR advisor recruitment advisor and a lot of those were focused on LinkedIn and partly that was because I think um as fantastic as people working in HR and recruitment are it's hard sometimes in the media industry we often occupy roles that don't follow kind of traditional career paths or yada yada you know things that are hard to advise on because it's such a specific and unique culture shall we say within many media organizations um but so we focus a lot instead on updating my cv and and getting the best out of linkedin and the things i learned there were really valuable so the first was to actually fill it out properly you know treat it like a CV, but make it very plain English about your achievements. Um, The second was to think about what opportunities you would like and how people would search for them. So, you know, good SEO, essentially, good thinking about natural search. So I... I think I had sort of listed a, a very specific job title as what I was. And actually, after looking for the kind of jobs or roles that I'd be interested in, I realized that there were certain keywords that, you know, 
linked those all together and I should put those you know in my bio I should make that actually that would be what people found me through and so that really helps I started popping up I think in a lot more searches keeping it up to date you know not just letting it gather dust um and also I think you can get a free kind of trial of premium and while I did that I did a lot of kind of research um, I'm not a premium member anymore, but I use that time to you can do things where you kind of really dig into um, the data on what LinkedIn shows up for different searches, different search terms, different keywords. And then you can use that to kind of boost your what you've got written in your profile. And so I think that really helped just a bit paying a bit of attention to it at the beginning while I had a bit of time to set some of these things up was really valuable for me. So I never write off LinkedIn because it has actually provided quite a few good work leads. And the more time you spent on it, the more tailored it is in terms of serving up jobs to you and emailing you notices about things going on. So I think it is worthwhile. Um, I'm not super active on it. You know, I don't, uh, I'm members of some groups, but a lot of professions use it, you know, as a real kind of water cooler or notice board for things. Whereas I just dip in and out, but I do make sure that my profile stays up to date. She says, thinking she should probably check that her profile is now up to date. Um, Yeah, the opportunities that have come from it have been some consultancy work, but I have had some writing. I have had some uh, editorial stuff. I've also had some kind of branded content work through it um, because I think brands and other institutions, they have a presence there. They're, They're kind of more familiar with using LinkedIn as a way to recruit and to and to find people. So there's been some jobs that have come through that um, in terms of copywriting work. Um, and so that's been pretty useful as well. And it just I think it takes you into a, a slightly different market um, in some respects that can neatly overlap with your other kind of networks. And I think open you up, as I said, to some of this more kind of, you know, certain institutions, certain organisations are very au fait with LinkedIn. And, and that's where you'll find them other jobs, other media organizations or on other social networks or, you know, through personal contact. So yeah, there's a definite compliment there. I think it's important to perhaps evaluate what you have done. You may have done more of it than you realize. Perhaps your job wasn't, your staff job, if that's what you're coming out of, wasn't exclusively a strategy role, but where did you make strategic decisions? Where did you lead on a project? Where did you change something um within your team or organizationally it's likely you've done more of it than you think um the flip side of that as well is non and I have done a little of this although I possibly could do more but I don't know uh, non news or non um media organizations uh, perhaps they do other kind of comms work are often looking for people who have editorial strategy experience so people who know how to content plan who know how to set up kind of newsrooms who know how to set up reporting teams you may not think of that strategic you may just think oh well that's what I was doing and that's what I've been trained to do actually other sectors really are quite interested in and in how that happens it's, you know all that kind of stuff that you may not think of as strategy because it was just part of your day-to-day job actually other people who haven't worked in that environment are really interested in how that comes together when you break it down into all the things you were responsible for or the stories you took charge of or whatever it is it's really valuable and there's a lot there but sometimes we define ourselves too much by the job title we had and and actually, you know, that LinkedIn example of going, well, what are people searching for? 
and what's applicable to me is a really good way of kind of breaking out of that because you suddenly realize, well, I was, you know, an editor, but I also did X, Y, Z. So make sure you're showing off all of those things because people in terms of consultancy stuff, sometimes they want everything and sometimes they want something really specific. So I do a lot of work with clients who want help with social media strategies. And sometimes it's already well established um, and they are looking for quite advanced stuff. Or sometimes they're right at the beginning and they haven't even staffed up and they haven't even launched properly on various platforms. So, you know, people are looking for different levels of your experience and different segments of it. So it's really important, I think, that you you kind of run an assessment of yourself of kind of, well, this is the level I'm, I'm at with all these different things, because you don't need to have had 10 years of experience in each and every one of them. You may be able to help you know, different people who were also at those different levels. My job at The Guardian was um, head of social and community by the end. And yeah, communities was the team that had, you know, beyond customer service, most contact with readers. Uh, so it brought you into discussions about new products and features for them. It brought you into editorial discussions it meant you had to work with the technology development team. You know, it kind of crossed all these different departments. And that's been quite useful as well, I think, because it just, as a freelancer, that's quite valuable. You know, it's taught you to work with different teams. It's taught you to work with different kinds of clients almost. Um, and that breaks you out a little bit from that newsroom bubble where everyone kind of has a shared language and um which is quite helpful when you are in the wider world and you realize that that is a bubble and you need to be able to um appeal and translate what you did in a newsroom perhaps to other types of organization constantly and consistently providing a bridge between the audience and the internal workings of the newsroom and vice versa and it's a bit more established now but when I started out in that field it was incredibly difficult both to communicate what on earth my job was to colleagues why it mattered um, why it wasn't a threat to what they were doing um, why it could help the wider newsroom you know all those kind of things it just wasn't very well explained or articulated I think sometimes from the higher ups and it was necessary to do a lot of that bridging um and I think it's it's a bit better now and particularly in the states there's a lot it's a lot more established in some newsrooms as well that this is a really vital role and this is how it supports our journalism or creates journalism you know that kind of thing but it was a yeah it was a bit of a tough sell at times at the beginning Journalism is one of the most fun careers you can have, aside from, you know, worrying about pay and chasing invoices. It is a lot of fun. I never thought that freelancing would take me to some of the places that I've been or to work with some of the people I've worked with. So I was fortunate enough in my first year of freelancing to end it by going to train journalists in Nepal in Kathmandu and that for me was a bit of a moment of oh my god you know I'm not I've never been a foreign correspondent I've never you know kind of worked in lots of locations around the world and I was yeah sitting with a group of excellent uh Nepalese journalists who'd come together for some digital training in a hotel halfway up 
um, the foothills of the Himalayas in August, which is a bad time to go to Nepal because you can't see the Himalayas. It's covered in fog and cloud. But just thinking, yeah, okay, what am I, (laughs) how did I get here? But it just was one of those things that um, both was very rewarding and training often is rewarding, but was completely unpredictable. If you'd asked me the year before, where do you think you'll be this time next year? My answer would not have been Kathmandu. I actually came across the opportunity on a site called Hack Pack, which is kind of um, a notice board for freelance journalists of all ilks. It often posts a lot of things about grants or grants or international reporting opportunities, and it's very geared up to be international. So it has sections um, for each continent and a global kind of section. And it was a Nepalese journalist called Deepak who um, works for lots of different news agencies around the world. He's a really great journalist, and he is trying to kind of pay it forward by working um, to set up training. And he'd got some backing from the British Embassy. So he had some money to kind of get some international trainers in. And yeah, it was honestly, it was a three line paragraph on Hackpack from this guy that I'd never come across before, just saying, does anyone do training in um, social media uh, verification, user generated content, et cetera, et cetera, and is free to travel and has trained before and has trained internationally I was like do you know what that I yeah that is me actually you know sometimes when you have to sit back it's the same when you look at a job description and you start going yeah I can I can actually do all of those things and it's a bit of a shock sometimes because <laughs> we're so used to kind of putting ourselves down um and I was like yeah great and just got in touch with them and it it almost seemed like it wouldn't happen it just seemed uh you know skyping one another and he's in noisy cafe in Kathmandu and I'm sat in my office in Brighton but yeah we made it happen and it was a wonderful experience I learned so much about the country about their media about their politics um it was fantastic and it's just one of those kind of pinch yourself moments for me those are the those are highlights for me because I love to travel um at the Guardian there was quite a lot of opportunity to do that we did um some projects um train kind of training and journalism projects in various different countries and the one I was involved in was in Brazil and we went out there for a couple of weeks um and we were working with local journalists and it was kind of a the idea was it was sort of kind of a knowledge sharing and getting the Guardian a deeper understanding of what was happening in that country and better connections with the journalists there and vice versa. And they got training from us. But it for me, it was incredible because it was a group of um, local journalists, citizen journalists, some activists, and they'd come from all corners of the country, including a, um, a young man who was his tribe's leader in the Amazon, who had taken about three flights and two buses to get there. And then, of course, us stupid European Western journalists waiting for him on the second floor of this building and then realising he'd never been in a lift. And actually, we needed to go downstairs and show him the stairs because he didn't know. He'd never seen one before. Um, So in terms of pricking your bubble and getting yourself (laughs) outside of the day to day, those kind of experiences for me have just been the best. And so I will always try and seek exciting opportunities to travel where I can get outside of my day-to-day but also you know learn a lot about the the media the 
journalism and the journalists in the, the place I'm in. In my career, I've had the good fortune and slightly strange opportunity to attend more journalism related conferences than I care to count um, because I was a media reporter and then I helped run them when I worked at journalism.co.uk and then at the Guardian was often invited to attend or to speak you know and um, I've always quite enjoyed doing that I don't mind public speaking and it's a good chance to again you know find out what other organizations are doing and meet people working in a kind of growing field similar to yours which is always quite nice and I can't this was a few years ago and I I had shown a group of Norwegian journalists around the Guardian. They'd come over on kind of a fact-finding mission. They were in the UK and and it was a pleasure because they were going to present to us about what they were doing digitally and us vice versa. And then they went back to Norway and we kept in touch and then they were having a big conference. Essentially, all Norwegian regional and local media come together, all the newspapers anyway, come together once a year. So it's a big deal. Um, so they put on a you know good show and back then they would get one kind of international speaker a year and they invited me which was really you know a real privilege because they wanted me to talk about what we've been doing at the Guardian with communities and user-generated content and things like that and so I said yes and I hadn't realized that the place was just very north of Norway sort of into the Arctic Circle and it was called Hell and Hell had actually frozen over when we landed (laughs) I'd never seen anything like it I mean if you're from the Nordic region from the Arctic Circle you this will be nothing new but I had never seen frozen parts of the sea entire rivers frozen over um so we landed in hell where a very nice man um from the organization came to pick me up wearing a light jacket because he said it wasn't that cold and I was wearing sort of every item of clothing I owned and yeah and um, the conference was really great it was full of really wonderful speakers lots of investigative journalists it was really fantastic and then there was a big dinner on the last night and then the entertainment at dinner was a very big Norwegian um, musical theatre star who wandered around the tables during our final course singing a medley from Jesus Christ Superstar while we tucked into the local reindeer delicacy. Anyhow, I just, you know, remember on the flight back, just sort of realising all of the things that happened in the last 48 hours. But it's a very fond memory. But just, yeah, I mean, I've been to Hell and Back. I've met Norway's premier opera stroke musical entertainment star. I learned that Norwegian Norwegians and Norwegian journalists can outdrink me at Aquavit and that you might nearly miss your flight if you're not careful. But yeah, it just I just thought of that when you were saying what kind of surprising situations have you found yourself in? And that for me was of all the conferences I've been to, that one sticks out a mile. <laughs> My three top tips as a freelance journalist So I think my first would be, and I only realised this when I was already freelancing, was write yourself a plan. Uh, It can be a business plan and it can have financial targets, but don't just make it about the financial targets. Make it those plus things that you would like to achieve in the next year and then start breaking that down into short, medium, long term goals. You may feel a bit weird doing it on your own but I have treated it 
as a kind of away day for myself. And I cannot emphasize how much it has helped me at moments of panic or stress or just thinking about well, what direction am I going in? Because I think freelancing can be uh, sometimes hard you've got endless opportunity almost, but then it's hard to pick the right path for you. So write a, write yourself a plan. Um, there's lots of really great uh, guides on there about how to do it. I think the one I wrote was by, uh, the one I read and that I based mine on was by, I think she was called Virginia Soulsmith. Anyhow, so do that, break it down, set yourself some kind of targets. Don't beat yourself over the head with them, but have them there to kind of guide you along the way. Um, the second piece of advice be that it's great when um, opportunities come to you, if that happens, and we should celebrate that. But we often think that the right jobs or the right pieces of work are right because they've come into our inbox. And you still need to say no if something doesn't feel right. I realise that can be a luxury when we've got mortgages and rent to pay. But sometimes saying no and as soon as you said no and you realise that that wasn't the job for you or that that was going to be a step too far because you've already taken too much on, just feels like a big weight being let off your shoulders. And I definitely have suffered in the past from saying yes to everything. You know, super freelancer, I can get everything done and I should never say no because they'll never come back to me. I actually don't think that's true. I try to treat people up front and be straight with them and explain if I've got too much work on or I could do this, but not until next month, because sometimes that works too. So if something doesn't feel right, or you haven't got the capacity to take it on, take a breath, just because it's landed in your inbox doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing right now. My third tip would be, if you're transitioning to freelance, if you're moving perhaps from um, another staff job, or perhaps you're making a big shift from what you've done before into a completely different field freelancing lep is to let people know because actually we don't keep up with one another's careers as much as we think we do and that might be like i did a one-off you know notification to everyone you've ever known on linkedin it might be you know regularly updating a blog and sharing it via social media it might be contacting i also did this you know there's kind of a a group of people that you know a bit better or you're friends with that work in your industry, let them know first and ask them to pass it on. You know, just letting people know because actually you'd be surprised. People don't know that you've made this momentous change in your career. You feel it very heavily, but they they haven't kept up. And vice versa, you will find that a lot of the people you thought were doing one job have changed into something completely different. So I think letting people know that you're now available and what you're available for is really important. I loved working in a newsroom and I found it endlessly fascinating and invigorating. But I also realised I couldn't necessarily work at that pace forever. And I think it's, I don't know, it affects different people in different ways. But for me, it came at the right time to step away from it for a bit. And I might go back into that environment um, at some point. But my resilience levels were very low and I needed, <laughs> I needed to build them back up again, um, just for life generally, if not for work. So I think it's yeah quite important that we pay a bit more attention to that stuff. And I think freelancing can can allow you to do that, but it can also kind of overwhelm you. I think if you're not careful. 
So thanks to Laura for showing us that there is life after redundancy, voluntary in her case. And sometimes it can feel like there might not be. But there is, and there can even be trips to Nepal and apparently hell. <laughs> if you'd like to get involved in the conversation, I'd love to hear from you. So please do follow Freelance Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also join the Facebook group, and you don't have to be a freelancer to get involved. If you enjoyed this episode of Freelance Pod, please do rate and review us. This helps other listeners find the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you get a notification every time there's a new episode of Freelance Pod. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.